Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond. This is episode number 562 for September 5th, 2018. And I'm your host, Allison Sheridan. Well, this week, my guest is Dr. Michael Kramer, Assistant Professor of the Practice Digital History at Middlebury College in Vermont. But to the Nosilla Castaways, he's known as Toby's dad. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks, Allison. Great to be here. Yeah, so uh, Toby is the youngest Nosilla Castaway we have that we know of and an active participant in our chat room. And as the audience probably knows, we got a chance to meet up with Toby and his dad at Max Stock Expo. And Toby's dad, Michael, and I were started talking and I found out he works in digital history and the history of computing. And I thought that sounded like a really fun subject to chat about on Chit Chat. And after getting Toby's permission, you said, okay, right? That's right. I had to make sure that I wasn't uh, barging in on his territory. <laughs> yeah, this is his gig. We're his people. But he let you, so that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I, I wanted you to give me, let's start with a, a elevator speech of what your job is. Sure. Well, we were joking around that um, I, I wanted to know how many floors were in the building for my elevator <laughs> speech. But um I'm a I'm a historian by training. I have a PhD in history, hmm. and I mostly work on um, U.S. and global cultural history. And so I wrote a, a book that grew out of my dissertation about uh, rock music and the global 1960s counterculture. Wow! And so um, at the time that I was doing that, and even before I went back to um, get my PhD, I'd always been interested in digital technology and computers. And in the last few years, I've started doing more work in this emerging field that is sometimes known as digital humanities, and in my case, in sometimes known as digital history. And the idea of that area of study is to think about how computers can help us analyze and share knowledge about topics in the humanities and history where there's been less work than in fields like engineering or computer science. Okay. So that's, so that's been um, part of the work I've been doing, but because I'm a historian, I, I tend to always not only think about how we might use computers today, but also, well, how were people using computers in the past and what's the history of this technology? And so some of my work has gone in the direction of this field called history of technology, kind of a subfield in in the history world. And so sometimes I'm working with students and doing research on kind of the the deeper history of computers and other kinds of technology. And sometimes I'm doing things like, well, how do we use uh, computers to collaborate among different scholars in new ways? Or how do we think about mapping data in a way that might help us learn something new or share something new about uh, things that happened in the past. Interesting. Well, when I first heard you uh, give a much shorter version of, of your title, my first thought was, you know, I'm old and my peers and I love to talk about, you know, well, back in my day, we had to use punch cards and we loved it. And I, I while most of us think that it's fascinating, the story we're telling, I had trouble picturing how you inspire young students to find these things interesting. Like, here's the timeline of the floppy drive. It doesn't sound like that's what your digital history classes are about. Well, when I teach a class called Cultural History of the Computer, one of the things that's really fun is for the students to get out of the present and turn toward the past a bit. They live in a world where there's always been the internet and there's always been handheld devices and these other things that I think for those of us from before that time, these were kind of... um, you know, miraculous inventions and sort of amazing. And for them, they're just normal. So I try to help the students uh, contextualize their own experiences of computers and technology in the kind of deeper history that you and I have lived through. And, um, and I think they really appreciate that because it gives them a better sense of uh, how we got to where we are now, both the, both in terms of the, really exciting opportunities that computers um, have brought to society, but also some of the real problems we're facing about computers today. 
So is that just a matter of taking their cell phones away and to ask him to, to remember things? <laughs> well, we try to um, contextualize the computer. So in a, in a more traditional history of technology class, you might actually get into some of the technical details of circuitry and things like that. We do a little bit of that, but because I'm a cultural historian, we also want to notice what computers meant to people. And what's really interesting is how, how, how much that has shifted over time. Computers in the period after World War II were often a symbol of um, big systems, of big government, of the man, <laughs> of, uh, of kinds of alienating forces in society. The students at Cal Berkeley, when they were protesting the way they were being treated by the administration, um, imagined themselves as human punch cards. And they would wear punch cards around their necks, you know, sort of saying, you're, you're dehumanizing us. You're treating us like we're just part of... We're data. <laughs> exactly. We're just part of a big machine. Huh. And, and of course, by the time you get to the advent of the personal computer and the internet, suddenly the computer is is a symbol of liberation and personal freedom and you think of the famous ad that apple uh, that apple broadcast on the super bowl to announce the macintosh in 1984 where the kind of yeah, a female runner throws a, a hammer into the screen of big blue and it's kind of a takeoff of uh, george orwell's novel and suddenly the computer's gone from being a giant mainframe um a giant brain that uh, is going to take over humanity to a tool for personal liberation and freedom. And now, of course, we have both of these visions of the computer floating around. So, <laughs> right. right? So, sometimes we think of it as something that's going to set us free and, and solve all kinds of problems in the world. And, and sometimes it does. Computers are helped to do those uh, things. And at other times, we still think about artificial intelligence and fears about um, a world in which humans are no longer human, <laughs> other kinds of dystopian fantasies like right. that. You, you're talking about the, the freedom thing brings to mind. I remember when Blackberries first came out and my friend Mike got one and he kept talking about how he loved it. And he was a fairly high level executive guy. And I told him, I said, you know, I don't want to be tethered to a device. And he said, no, Allison, it's exact opposite. He said, every night after dinner, I used to push back from the table, go off into the other room and be locked in there doing my email every night. And now I do an email while I'm waiting for people to show up to meetings. I do a couple while I'm waiting for the elevator. And he actually saw that as a freeing device. Of course, over time, since everybody got them, then, of course, it turned into a tether again. But it was it was that exactly what you were just talking about. Yeah, this was a real, I think in the 1980s and be, kind of beginning in the 70s, there was this shift uh, in how people were imagining the computer. Of course, as you, you know, some of that had to do with some developments technologically, the shrinking of microprocessors, the increase in power of uh, uh, computational power. But as much of it was cultural, new kind of imaginings of what a computer could do, um, and B, uh, and of course, companies like Apple are, and figures like Steve Jobs and the other people he worked with at Apple were, were um, at the forefront of some of these ideas, or a figure like Stuart Brand, who was involved with the whole Earth Catalog and a kind of a countercultural figure in the 60s, uh, moves into the computer industry and um, begins to reimagine um, what what these devices might be able to do in in people's lives that's yeah that's that's really interesting when you look back on and and you're teaching through the history do you talk at all about the influence of women on technology say back when computers were women yes of course it comes as a shock to my students to know that once upon a time computers were people <laughs> now we're, we're you know we're we're, we're sort of worried now about computers becoming um, people in a sense of artificial <laughs> intelligence. But uh, the computer, of course, like a like a clerk was the was a person who worked to who computed, um, com right. computed, worked through all the equations that needed completing. And um, many of the uh, computers were women. It was one of the areas of work that women could could do but, um, in the days before 
um, women's liberation and feminism and all the kind of transformations in the workforce that we've seen. So I, um, there's been wonderful scholarship in the last few years on the hidden history of women in computing as a transition from a kind of human doing uh, equations and uh, figuring out um, the actual computation to uh, working with the earliest of computers. In fact, the ENIAC, which was sort of the first modern, one of the first modern computers developed during World War II, took up the entire basement of a facility um, uh, in um, Maryland. Uh, or Yes, and I think it was in Maryland. I have to look at my notes now again. But um, the, uh, of course, the, there were men running the project, uh, engineers from University of Pennsylvania, and they were being funded by the U.S. military to um, try to um, improve some of the speed with which they could calculate the equations for the slide rules that the artillerymen needed to calculate how the trajectories for firing artillery in the war in Europe. So the, there were these male engineers, some of whom then went into the computing business in California. But the scholarship has revealed that they actually, the men didn't know anything about how to keep the machine going and, <laughs> and use it. It was the um, female assistants who could get into the guts of the machine in the basement of this laboratory, and um, which, of course, was run on tube amps at the time. It's and, um, and, and, and actually knew the ins and outs of how to keep the machine running. Of course, the, the, um, when we begin to get uh, space exploration with NASA, the calculations uh, and the programming that was done for uh, the Apollo missions to the moon were done by a woman. Um, and there's a wonderful, some wonderful photographs of her standing with her kind of stack of um, computer printouts which is like up to her head. <laughs> and, uh, and in the recent film, Hidden Figures, we learn the story of African-American women who were involved in, in some of this work. One of my so, favorite movies. Boy, that is yeah. such a compelling movie. Really, yeah, really it? interesting. Well, and it made me think of a question. Um, at the time, do you, do you wonder whether there might have been men who wanted to be computers, but they weren't allowed to because they were men? <laughs> you know, that's a great question. I think... <laughs> You know, these days, it's um, one of the struggles in Silicon Valley, of course, and, and in much of the tech world is, is to um, bring more women into the field and encourage them. And I, I wonder at the time if, um, if there were men who were interested, but, but didn't, it wasn't uh, acceptable or normal. Right. I, yeah. I, think, I think what's interesting, too, about this is that um, the kind of different kinds of knowledge that different people acquired in their work and how things in the 1950s and 60s, as women were still working with the, these early computers, I mean, they had this enormous amount of knowledge, but it wasn't really valued properly. Hmm. And, uh, and now, um, you know, we, this kind of knowledge is, is really, we tend to think of the, the, the infamous programmer <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh and how women are cut off from this, but there's a deeper history there to tap to tap into of um, of women being involved. But your question about whether men wanted to be involved in this is a is a great one. I I, I, I I'm sure there were, and I'm sure their stories are just waiting to be uncovered, either in the archives or through oral history interviews. I think that sounds like a uh, perfect assignment to torture some of your grad students with to make them go <laughs> get right. me the, that answer. Before I forget, um, I double checked. I looked up for you because I knew it was going to bother you. ENIAC was uh, University of Pennsylvania. Yeah. I can and tell I you, think you wanted to get it right. Ahead. Yeah. And I think the facility where it actually was built was maybe on a, on an, on a um, Navy facility that oh. was not at... It, I have this memory that it's, I have to look at my notes. In fact, I'll be teaching this in a month or two from now. So I need to be ready to go. But um, what's interesting, I mean, one way that I start the class uh, just to get my students' attention is I say to them, the modern computer was developed to kill more people more accurately, (sighs) which of course is a little bit of an exaggeration in the sense that computers were already being developed uh, by, um, uh, uh, various people to to um, try to um, 
tabulate the census. So the Hollerith machines and things like that were, were already around and IBM was getting going. So it wasn't just a military pursuit, but that but the always census wakes. doesn't get their attention. Right? <laughs> yeah. So I, I think this idea that this thing that now is so uh, glamorized in American life um, has this yeah, uh, you know, a, a connection to um, to war and violence and, and the way that we humans are pretty good at using technology to destroy things as well as create things and to fight with each other. You know, this has to be part of the story as well. And I like my students to, to dive into those vexing questions and grapple with them. You know, how do we really think about this technology more critically when we realize that it's been used in all these different ways? I like to think of a future where we will still have war, but it's a war game and it's two computers fighting and nobody's dying. That, that's where I, I like to see it go. A, a virtual, yeah. a virtual space. Well, I do have my students watch the film War Games. Which uh-huh. I don't know if you remember yeah. from the early 80s. Uh-huh. And it features a young Matthew Broderick and a young Ali Sheedy. Of course, my students today see Matthew Broderick as a teenager and they're like jaws drop. So that's another <laughs> moment. They think of him as, as older. But that's a, I love that film. I think it really stands up as kind of an, a film from the early 80s about the collision of the things we were talking about, this new kind of hacker culture uh, that's developing and hobbyist clubs like the ones that Steve Wozniak was in and the Homebrew Computing Club in the Bay Area where Apple gets its start. That's the Matthew Broderick character. And he, of course, comes, hacks into, kind of by accident, hacks into the Whopper, <laughs> which is the which is the military's kind of doomsday device. And, um, you know, and, and, and I think for the students, you know, these are fun cultural artifacts um, from, from pop culture. They're not uh, technical, you know, circuit diagrams, but they, but the computer is, is so important in how people have thought about the computer um, surfaces and these kind of pop culture artifacts like films and, 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 um, and, and science fiction and other kind and TV and other kinds of uh, pop culture. Yeah. So in your course syllabus, I noticed that you had objectives of the course that included making convincing and evidence-based arguments. And that stood out as something completely separate from the vast amount of reading material you ask your, your students to go through. So can you talk about how that fits into all of this conversation? Yeah, one of the things that um, that I've been thinking a lot about as a as a professor and a teacher is especially when it comes to the digital uh, spaces that like social media spaces that occupy a lot of our lives now is, you know, these are spaces where people express opinions and they're, you know, they can be quite um, noisy and, um, and they seem to be um, uh, dividing us as Americans and as people in the world, as much as, as creating community. And that, as a side note, that's one of the reasons why I love the work you do with the Nozilla cast is it's such a model of how to be a community and not a space of um, discord, even though you use discord. <laughs> so uh, it, but, it, it is unusual in that. And it's something that I'm really pleased with that. And it, it hasn't happened because Steve and I have a strong arm against anybody who's snotty. People just right. aren't snotty. I mean, it, yeah, it, it, it literally doesn't happen. It's really great. I, I think it's it's something to really be proud of, and and um, and I think you set the tone for for how to have fun and and interact. And and so back to your question, you know, so much of social media is not about that these days. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I want my students to learn, as you know, young citizens coming of age in the in in our country and in the world right now, is how do you actually have civil debate? How do you use evidence? to uh, develop an argument or a position, not just your opinion and, and, and not just anything goes, but, you know, how do we connect um, uh, data to some kind of argument about what, what's happened in the past or what we should do or what's right and what's wrong? And how do we talk about that and argue with each other about that? We can argue fiercely, 
but using evidence to um, to and and some common rule, you know, common ground uh, for our discussion. So. While my I students- love that in, in so many ways. And yeah. what it makes me think is this isn't something that is particular to learning about uh, the history of computing and the effect on, on society, but rather something that maybe should be in the root of all courses. That's right. I, I think of it as sort of an obligation I have as a teacher. Um, and, and, if, and I think these days, using the computer and its history as a way to work on those skills of wielding evidence and making arguments that are convincing uh, and then, you know, so being in dialogue with other people is such a, it's, it feels very pertinent to me and relevant because so much of our lives on our computer devices um, have a different tone to them. So it's like, let's actually fit this topic into something a little more like, you know, what it means to be part of a democracy and participate and, and, try to deal with reality and come to terms with it. So that's kind of, uh, that's a, I build that into almost all my classes as, as a skill that my students are working on, whether we're exploring music or computers or uh, some other topic. Well, I've decided that to do my part to stop the divisiveness, I'm going to start saying nice things about Android. (laughs) I'm going to reach across the aisle <laughs> I don't know if you can go that far. <laughs> well, I've I've got one. I like typing on my Nexus 5X better than I like typing on my iPhone. So there. <laughs> so there's actually evidence. There you go. You have exactly. some evidence to use. <laughs> exactly. Well, I have to I'll have to work on this with Toby because he's definitely a, a, a an Apple enthusiast if I've ever met one. Just an ever so slight Apple bias, right? <laughs> That's right. But it's only ever so slight and we we consider all evidence and take it seriously. <laughs> it's just all the evidence points in one direction. <laughs> I'm with you on that. As a as a person, I should say, you know, before I became a, a, an academic and a and a and a scholar, um, I do. I my family did actually purchase one of the original 128k Macintoshes. Oh wow! I think it must have been in 1985, and um, and I had to convince my my dad. Um, you can see where Toby gets this from, <laughs> to purchase the slightly more expensive Macintosh over the IBM PC. Uh. And he did. And my my dad, Toby's grandfather, was, is, is a mathematician. So he was familiar with computers. And he, he sort of looked at the, at the Macintosh and he said, well, they're hiding all of this behind the graphical user interface. I want to actually see, you know, the code and work with the code. And I was very taken by, you know, kind of the magic of the, of the device and it's, um, and the design of it. And, and, and it seemed like such a powerful kind of, a um, new kind of, kind of tool to use. And, uh, and he said, okay, let's, let's try it out. And he still uses Apple too. So. Oh, good, good. We brought him over. And, and now, and I'm, I'm not that versed in Windows. Yeah, I've dabbled in it a little bit, but definitely not as much as on the Mac. But now one of the reasons I love the Mac is that I can dive under the hood. So I'm spending a lot more time in the terminal and, and, and coding and bash scripts and things like that. And, and that to me is really exciting that I've got this beautiful GUI interface that I can play with if I want to, but I can also lift up the curtain and dig underneath and mess around in the, in the guts of it. Does he work on that? Does he get down to that level? Well, he, he does number theory. So he's, he does real abstract math, but he, yeah, he, as a younger person, he was interested in, in that. And of course, I think Toby outpaces all of us and, getting in there into the code and learning a little bit about it. And I'm impressed with a lot of my students um, at Middlebury and when I was teaching at Northwestern outside of Chicago, they really, um, some, of, some of them are, are really keen on getting under the hood, as you say, and, and exploring like, how does this actually work? And where does the, uh, where does the code uh, meet what you want it, you know, getting, executing some kind of function. So I'm always learning a lot from my students as they, you know, from their knowledge and their interest in, in um, being more critically agile with technology. Before we get too far away from your, uh, your father, uh, tell him that a friend of mine, her mother uh, discovered a prime number. 
Oh, he'll like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> Diane Holdridge is her name. And she was, uh, I think she was at Sandia Labs when she did that work. But uh, ah. yeah, that's like, it's like, I know, I know a guy, you know, I know a woman right. who figured out a prime number. So well, <laughs> I asked to read her I, paper and I got past the first sentence and I was like, okay, no idea. I grew up with a lot of scrap paper with kind of mystical looking symbols on it. And when I was growing up and I just so admire that kind of um, thinking. I mean, I, I became more of a humanities person, but, um, but I just, uh, I, I just so admire and, and appreciate people who think in these abstract ways and are creative in these ways. It's, it's such a, it's part of what makes us human, right? It, it's such a wonderful thing. So to I'll have understand to, this. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell him about your friend. I think he'll be, he may well know, he may well know about this, but I'll, I'll find out. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Well, so how important is it to understand the the people, the personalities who uh, influence the direction we've gone in computing? You know, Alan Turing or or uh, you know Ada Lovelace and, and more. That's a great question. I, I try to help my students um, steer away from the most kind of great man history, as we call it, or in this case with Ada Lovelace and others, great woman history. Which is, which is to have them think a little more about the, the social context and the social structures. You know, how, what, what, are the, what are the contexts that produce someone like Ada Lovelace or someone like Steve Wozniak or someone um, uh, like Alan Turing? And, um, you mean like how did their parents influence them? Or? How did their parents or the, or the larger things going on in the world? I mean, how... how um, how someone uh, came out of a context in which, let's take Steve Wozniak, who, you know, really just had this um, kind of hobbyist interest in the computer. And um, with my students, we talk about the, the, that there, there was such a strong idea in 1960s America that you should have a hobby. And, you know, there were racing cars and, um, and stamp collecting and coin collecting. There were all these different kinds of hobbies. And Steve Wozniak comes of age in that culture. And so his gifts, which really are kind of singular gifts as a computer engineer and imaginer of the personal computer, come out of a context in which people were valuing that kind, that way of using your leisure time, you know, that it was fun to go in the garage and play around with them, uh, designing a motherboard for a, for a computer. So, hmm. so we use, we use, we use biography a little bit, but, um, I also try to get my students to, to kind of think about the, the bigger waves of our shared life together and how these individuals kind of, you know, crest up on top of the waves that all of us are part of in American history. Does that sort of make sense? Yeah, I, I I feel more, and I don't have any evidence to base this on as I think about it. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, but my my gut feel is I think about what if Steve Wozniak had been born in 1736? What would he have done? Would he have been anybody? Would he have would he have accomplished something amazing in that era? Uh, or let's say the other way around, all, you know, he's in 2092 when all the, this kind of stuff has been figured out. Would he have figured out something that we don't know about yet? And or is it because he was in the right place at the right time with the right brain? Yeah. So we would call this counterfactual history, which is to try to imagine, right, what what if kind of questions. And as you're kind of suggesting, we only know that Steve Wozniak happened to be the guy in his place and time who came up with the, you know, this new way of, of, of so elegantly fitting everything onto the, the motherboard. And of course, he was drawing on all kinds of other friends and things he was reading about and people he knew. But I, I think, um, uh, I think uh, for, for my students, I want them to uh, move a little bit away from like, um, um, you know, there are these great heroes that we should celebrate and instead think about how uh, how many people it has taken to develop a computer. Um, and it's funny, I just was listening, I was doing a little research because I've been rethinking how I teach some of the that Apple computer stuff. And 
um, one of there's a great interview with Steve Wozniak where he really says, you know, it wasn't just Steve Jobs and me. There were all these other engineers and sort of colorful characters around at the time. And everyone had some little idea or sometimes a big idea that flowed together to, uh, to, to do the things we were trying to do. And, and I, w- I like my students to think about that as well, that people, people don't do these things in a vacuum. They do them um, surrounded by other people and in family situations. I mean, someone like Alan Turing, as we know, you know, came of age at a time when his sexuality wasn't really accepted. And that was a, str- a great struggle. And he was quite courageous and, but of course, suffered a lot because of that. And that's part of his story too, that um, we need to see some of the tragedies of all this, as well as the, uh, some of the triumphs. So that's kind of some of the modes I try to help my students think about what, and as they um, I try to get them to uh, sort of think like nerdy academic historians. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when you're talking about um, the people who were around Steve Wozniak that all contributed as well, when when my kids were little, they were forced into group projects. And if you've ever been in a group project, you know that you're the only one contributing anything. Everyone else is a bunch of deadbeats. Three out of five of them are idiots. Uh, okay, Sally's doing a little bit of work, but it's mostly me, right? That's everybody's perspective on the team. I mean, some people must know they're actually deadbeats. But of course, my children were the true leaders. And uh, <laughs> But what I told them is they were struggling with this and just hating it. I said, this is actually the best training you're getting in anything you're learning. I mean, in it, you can teach somebody math, you can teach somebody English. Teaching somebody to work together in a team is probably the most useful skill you could teach anybody. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I, I like, like, um, like your kids, I've always been, I always raise my eyebrows a little bit at group work, Mm -hmm. as they call it. But I think you're right that um, one of the things I talk about with my students is that how do we mix together individual work and group work? Um, And, and um, if you think about it, a lot of what we do as people in the world, and when we're studying things, and when we're working on things is, is, is kind of about the trying to get the balance right between those times when you get doing something all on your own and it's your thing and you're really in control of it. And those times when you're collaborating with someone else or sharing, or even in a little bit of conflict with someone else about a project. And as you're saying, it's about figuring out your own way into that balance. And and Um, again, if you look at Steve and Steve, when they were working on it, Steve uh, Jobs, early success was because he successfully tricked Wozniak into doing things for him. So his influence <laughs> talents were really what what kind of got things started. And his salesmanship, you know, they didn't have anything. He wasn't the great engineering brain that Steve Wozniak was, but he recognized the guy who was and and managed to, to uh, you know, cultivate that and get him to go forward. So from a sociological perspective, it was his his influence talent, not his technical talent that had anything to do with the early startings of it. Right. And I think you see that story repeat itself with a lot of these breakthroughs, whether it's earlier in the history of the modern computer or even we don't, it's, you know, we, we can even go all the way back to things like the printing press and think about and study and people have done this. You know, there are different people. There's, there's the person who had the technical chops, but there's often that person who, who knew how to translate the technical um, breakthroughs into something that made sense to other people that oh yeah they kind of frame it and I think Steve that was in a way Steve Jobs one of his gifts as you suggest was exactly that and and if it had only been one of them I don't think we would have uh, we wouldn't be able to have our ever so slight biases today <laughs> at all so. I was also wait are, are you Wozniak. counterfactualizing there <laughs> I could be I could be. I learned Steve a new Wozniak. word. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, history. Now you know some historians say you know say well they'll sort of dismiss something. Say well that's a counterfactual argument. Well, okay, but let's let's have fun with it anyway because it's <laughs> fun to think about. There's another you know there's all these other interesting figures in these in these stories um, who uh, who I think some graduates there's there's all kinds of great uh, dissertations yet to be written about the history of the computer and, and some of these personalities and their interactions. And um, 
I think it's just beginning to be more rigorously historicized as time passes. And so I'm really excited to see the work that younger scholars are going to do on some of these um, some of these really interesting stories that you know really shaped our world now. What do you talk much about curiosity in this context? Because I I feel like a lot of this has to do with people who have curiosity, who want to understand, who want to figure things out, and and have that just innate need to to ask you know why why does that work that way? Almost like like a small child, except into a grown up. <laughs> right. There is something childlike about a lot of these, um, you know, really brilliant minds. I think you're right about that. I, you know, your question made me think about uh, one of the things I talk about in my class a lot uh, on the history of the computer is, um, is, you know, the students, especially high achieving students today, you know, they've been tested and there's all this effort to be objective. And uh, one of the things I realized in, in talking with them is that um, both the, compu- the, the all the things that go into the computer, whether it's hardware design or software design, programming, um, all those things are a lot like hi- the the practice of history itself, which is that they really are crafts as much as they are some kind of science. You know, I always. And how like, do you define a craft in that context? Well, I think instead of being something formulaic, where you kind of like you know insert slot a uh, insert um fold a into slot b or that kind of a thing okay they they take a little more creativity as as your and and curiosity like how do i solve this puzzle in some way that i no one's ever thought about before or what if we did it this way or what if we did this thing it seems a little crazy but what if we thought about it more and um uh what if we put this thing together with that thing or compared this to that and tested them out so I try to get my students a little more comfortable with the idea that they're learning a craft. And I think that's where the curiosity comes in. It's like, I even sometimes do an assignment in the class where this, all the students have to do is, is uh, frame a question rather than come up with an answer. Oh. Because the questions are often really the most interesting part. And sometimes we're so keen to, I think us Americans, especially, we're so keen to, you know, we're, we're, we're very practical minded. We want to solve problems and very pragmatic about things. But, you know, those questions that are a little philosophical, a little bit strange, you know, some question you've never quite asked before, maybe a question that doesn't quite have a perfect answer. Maybe a question that's a little bit more of a dilemma as much as a question. Those are part of the craft of thinking about the world too. And so uh, that's what you're, when you talk about curiosity, I think I try to get my students a little more comfortable thinking about what it means to practice the craft of history or to practice the, you know, what was it like to practice the craft of computing, which it turns out is, 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 is really as much an art as it is a science in, in many ways. Yeah, definitely. It, uh, as much as I hate to admit it, because I have no artistic side to me, but uh, yeah, that's interesting. But but engineers, I mean, I think this is the thing that we forget to, to talk about more is that engineering is as much an art as a science. And when when I talk to my friends who are biologists and chemists and you know do the natural work in the natural sciences or physicists, you know, they actually they always they kind of look at me after we talk a little more and they say. Yes, it actually it is a little bit of an art as much as a science. <laughs> you know, now they're interested in reproducible results and you know the scientific method is so powerful in that idea where you can prove something because you can repeat it. And in the humanities, maybe we're a little bit more interested not so much in being able to reproduce results, but in coming up with really singular interpretations like this thing happened in this moment for these reasons and will never happen again that way. So there's some differences, but in both of those practices of trying to find out new things and, and articulate them, I think there's as much art, and that art is connected to curiosity as much as anything else. Hmm. I always had trouble with humanities courses because I couldn't tell when my homework was done. <laughs> That's right. In my engineering well, that... courses, you know, you got the right answer. Yep. 
<laughs> no, that's right. And I, and I think you wrote you know, QED, you know? <laughs> yeah, that was it. But, but this is to me the fun of, of, um, uh, you know, at, at Middlebury, one of the things that I do is I coordinate uh, a program we have in the digital liberal arts. And the idea of the digital liberal arts is it's really what it's missing there in parentheses is the digital liberal arts and sciences, mm. which is how we bring together these different ways of thinking and we let them kind of live with each other. So I think you're right that in your humanities class, you're, you're always a little more in the area of interpretation, but, uh, and in, you know, then in your engineering class where you're kind of looking for that most elegant, perfect answer. And, yeah, I don't when get to I, interpret F equals MA. It's going to be right. true whether I, I care it, it is or not, or whether I believe in it or whether I think it should be. Right, exactly. And that's a big difference. But there, of course, there's sort of beauty in both in both of those, right? There's beauty in something that has that, that permanence to it. And there's a kind of beauty in, in, um, in, in, for me, in history, where you can basically sort of argue on and on and on about a topic. And there's really no kind of final answer. There's just, as we were saying, there's just kind of better and worse evidence-based interpretations. See, I, I really do need to surround myself with people like you because that gets back to what you were talking about, evidence-based arguments. To me, if I can provide you the evidence of A and B and A and B together means C is true, then you should listen to me and agree with me. <laughs> right. And and it's almost never the case, but that's the way I see the world is because it's you know, QED. Yeah, Why don't this you is an, This is an engineer. This is an engineer I'm I'm speaking with. And I think yeah, it, it is. <laughs> it's been great. Well, this is one of the things I've liked about this work I've done increasingly in digital history and digital humanities. And these are like even in academia, no one quite knows what those terms mean. <laughs> And because people want them to mean all kinds of things and they're new and no one's quite figured out, you know, how to do the, this kind of work best. But one of the things that they do is they bring, there's a tension in them between an engineer's way of thinking about the world and a humanities scholar's way of thinking about the world. And it's exactly the tension you're talking about. The engineer stereotypically wants there to be a kind of permanent answer that cannot be disputed. It just is, and it's done, and there, and as you're saying, that's what it is. And in the humanities, you know, we come out of the these great philosophical legacies of people sitting around and, you know, talking about those unanswerable questions <laughs> of the world. And so digital humanities kind of tries to bring these together, and, and sometimes it makes for very, very awkward <laughs> uh, pairings, but I think also I think there's something great about you know uh, in in academia there people get can get quite stuck in their specialized uh, worlds and that's fine and that's you know what they do and that's what we do as scholars but there's sometimes there's just great uh, pleasure and new knowledge that comes from uh, talking across those different ways that we approach the world so I really. That's for me one of the things I'm really excited about in in um, in this um, weird thing that's being called digital humanities or digital history. Yeah. So, what do you hope your students will do differently in their lives or careers as a result of understandings that they they gain through these things you're you're discussing? Oh, what a great question! Well, I'm an engineer. There's got to be a purpose to everything, there's right? There's got to be a purpose. I mean, it sounds it really fun. Yeah. Well, I think the serious part of it for a lot of the students is some of the students are engineers and they're on their way to working with computers in their careers and in their lives. But a lot of them might go in other directions. You know, they, they might become writers or, you know, managers or various kinds of work. And I love the idea that they might leave this class a little more comfortable with um, the technical world. You know, I'm not I'm not teaching them how to program in any extensive way, but I am encouraging them in some of the assignments they do to do the thing you mentioned of peeking under the hood a little bit, you know, and 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 understanding a little more like how does you know when the when something goes in email from point A to point B, what's actually happening? Oh, you get into that. Yeah. And and we talk about packet switching and we actually um, here, there's some wonderful documentary films about um, some of the engineers who, you know, did the work with ARPANET and so on and so forth. And so 
I, that's the, the part of my class where we get into the technical side of it is, um, is the part that I think for some of the more humanities oriented students, they leave the class with just a little more, a little less mystification. Okay. Right. Does that make sense? Like yeah. A little more, yeah. A little more like they don't have, they're, they're probably not gonna do extensive programming or become an engineer, but they kind of know a little bit about how the computer and digital worlds work. And like, you know, when you send off an email, what's actually happening and how did that actually develop? And what were the, what, what's the history? Actually, the history is such a great way into that for them. You know, right? so they say, oh, these were people in the past who like tr- figured out how to get this to work. So it's like a way into the technical for humanities students. Now, maybe some appreciation for things like it isn't just magic that you press this button and the email gets there. Right. It's it's appreciation for it. There's a wonderful book that we use by a, but he's actually an architectural uh, journalist. He writes about architecture. It's a book called tubes and it's kind of a, I think it's called a material history of the internet. I'm looking and at your syllabus, Andrew Blum, Tubes, Andrew a, journey Blum. To, a Journey to the Center of the, the Internet. center of the Internet. Ooh. And the book, he's a wonderful writer, and the book starts with, he, he's at his apartment, he lives in New York City, and he's at his apartment, and his internet is broken. So he calls the, um, you know, the technology guy, the cable guy to come, and they are looking around, they can't figure out what's wrong with his internet, why doesn't it work? They go outside the building, and as the cable guy looks up at the at the wires of the building, and he says, Oh, a squirrel ate your internet. <laughs> and this leads him, he starts thinking, you know, well, here I am sitting, you know, working on my journalism and, you know, everything sort of, ma- as you say, everything magically happens. But wait a minute, there's actually, you know, there, you know, there is, uh, there are actually all these wires and, um, and, uh, you know, how does like, how does an email get from the United States to Europe through these cables that go under the Atlantic Ocean? And where do they actually come up? onto shore and who does that work and how does all the infrastructure behind the scenes function and it's just and he's he's very good at you know introducing people and stories and um and and writing well about this and for the students i think just it's like a peek into the technical world that we live our lives in now and i one of my hopes is that they come out of the class just you know kind of when they see that windowless building in the middle of the city, they know that that's a data center probably processing something, you know, <laughs> that's moving through or that he has a wonderful, you know, he talks about fiber optic cable underneath New York City. And he says, you know, underneath us is a, our tubes of light, huh. which I love is such a poetic image. But Yeah, he, he didn't yeah. say a series of tubes then. No, well, of course, it's a joke on that. Um was that um, was a senator uh, from Alaska? Alaska, yeah. Stevens, um, Ted Stevens, the guy with the bridge. Yes, <laughs> the guy with the bridge to nowhere. Yes, I he he was asked to um, talk about what the internet was on the um, Senate floor, and he and he says, you know, something like it's a series of tubes. It's not a dump truck that dumps things around. And yes, I play that. I also recently found that there's a wonderful clip of the Today Show from the, I think it must be about the 1994, 1995, where they, um, they're the hosts of the Today Show. It's like Brian Gumble and is it Katie Couric at that point, maybe? Or they're, yeah, they're talking. I think, I think it's them. I'll, I have to look again, but. They're um, they they're trying to read an email address and they don't know what to do with the at sign. Oh yeah 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 I have seen that it, yeah they've yeah. never seen it before they don't know what it is. <laughs> they say how do we say that how do I do, how do I talk about that and of course for students today it's like their jaws drop you know how could this ever have been <laughs> so so by I the way I just leaving... bought, I just bought Andrew Blum's book on on oh. uh, on uh, Kindle just now while we were talking that sounds fantastic. Oh. You know, he could be another wonderful chit chat uh, interviewee for you. I've I've talked a little bit with Andrew, and he Ooh. he's got great stories from his research for the book, and I just think it's a great book. It's accessible, but um, but he really gets into the technical side of it. You know, like how do these guys put to when they're when they're stringing together fiber optic cable 
how do they actually get the two wires connected, you know, with precision uh, to, to, um, to, uh, to get the fiber optic to work. Um, oh yeah, that sounds fantastic. I did a little bit of work great. in fiber optics and that was, that was tricky stuff. Maybe he knows the answer. I, I've never been able to figure out how on earth we ever thought we could lay cable between continents. I mean, come yes. on, that's not true. We can't well, do that. And it's great because he actually goes to where the cable comes up. There's like sort of some nondescript beach in New Jersey where one of the transatlantic cables comes up. And amazingly, if I'm remembering this right, the the current uh, transatlantic cable that for data uh, transmission actually follows the route of the original telegraph cable. Oh, wow. So we because were we were crazy long before fiber optics came around. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> and I think it has to do with finding the shortest distance. Oh, okay. You don't <clears> want to go has, through that Mariana Trench or whatever. Exactly through. right. That will that will slow down. That will certainly slow down your uh, your your your, uh, your live Netflix. stream. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Let's go as deep as possible, right? Yeah. So he has another chapter about some of the exchanges, like there's the um, the exchange in Stanford and in some other places where various companies hook up their servers so that they can get faster transmission hmm. between them. And uh, and then he also has a chapter, I think, about some of the server farms, like in the Dalles in Oregon. You know, there are these clusters of places where 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 the you know where the the thing we call the cloud actually is in a giant air conditioned warehouse. Right, right, right. And so I think for my students, the as you're, you know, the idea that you know there this is it's real stuff. And it's real people, and we have to think about things like the environmental impact of these things that seem to be magical and virtual and disembodied, um, and that there's actual people out there and doing the work on that to keep these things going. And you know that's really important for them to become more aware of. So that's one of the things that I want them to to come away from the class um, thinking about a little bit more. And the second big thing is that is just um, to to neither romanticize the computer too much nor vilify it too much hmm. right to get in to to really see like this is a technology the technology isn't doing things to us we we humans have to make decisions both as individuals and together about what we want the technology to be and do and and you know so that's a kind of a moral that's my moral education, even though I'm not a philosopher or, you know, I'm a historian, but I, I think there is a kind of, you know, that, that the technology doesn't determine everything. We, we have to come up with decisions about what we want it to do and the parts of our lives we want it to be in and not be in and how we want it to, to, to function um, for us. So those are some of the things I hope my students come away um you know, maybe kind of chewing on some of those problems a little bit more and having some history and to connect to as they try to tackle those problems. You know, man, the more I listen to you, the more I want to take your class. Except, <laughs> man, there's a lot of work. I'm, I'm looking at, like, Tuesday, October 30th is the rise of the Internet. There are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, uh, six books and a, and a movie that they have to watch oh, for the, Thursday. The- those aren't books. Those are just essays. Those are the, the, so they're not reading six books. Now, even I wouldn't do that to myself. Well, students. one of them's a book. One of them's Andrew Blum's book, oh, pages one to one hundred three. So maybe it's okay, longer yeah. than that. The other sections, yeah. but still, I haven't read that much in a month. <laughs> that's, that's just Thursday or Tuesday. So what, one of the things I've, I've built into this class is, um, and uh, over time, is um, uh, I want my students to work on the skill of having to deal with. Um, a, a, a processing a lot of information. How do you, how, when you get a lot of information, how do you not read every word, but learn how to skim things and look for the important stuff? Hmm. So, so that's one reason why I give them a lot of reading. And then I, what they do each week is they they develop what I call a reading journal. And the reading, it's actually, it's sort of a, a, a weekly assignment where they have to pick out one or two of the readings that they think are most important to them. Like it might be a reading that they're actually thinking they might write their 
term paper on or something like that. And, and, um, and then that's the reading that they go into a little more depth on. So unlike some classes where, you, where like you have, you're required to read everything and then you get drilled and tested on it, in my class, it's this other approach where I say, you're probably not going to read and watch everything in my class, and that's okay. What you need to do instead is work on this skill of kind of like how do you cast a net for the things that you're most interested in or the things that you think matter the most Hmm. And, and, and process those and kind of give them more weight than some of the other material, because that's the world that our students are going out into now, right? It's a <laughs> right, world right. Of way too much information. And so I like this idea that in a class on the history of the computer, we're actually working on that skill. Wow. Well, um, I think there's enough material in here for at least five more chit chat. So I'm, I may drag you back in because this is everything you're telling me is fascinating. And I love I, I, I keep looking at all these other things I want to ask you, but I'm going to close this out. But I want to finish with a, a final question to you with what you know and what you've learned about history and the cultures and of, of history. You have a brilliant young son with an incredible aptitude for technology. I could ask you what would the world be like if Toby was born in the 1700s, but I won't. But <laughs> how do you... A count, that's a counterfactual Yes, question. I don't want to do that. Kind of, and I learned a new word. Uh, that's, yeah. uh, so how do you personally feed that talent so he can be as successful as possible? Like, and and all, on the flip side, do you also feel compelled to yell at him to go outside and play and get away from the computer? Boy, that's a now you're getting at my parenting skills more than my <laughs> teaching skills. Okay, well, that might be unfair then. <laughs> no, it's a great question. I think a lot of parents I know are struggling right now with, um, you know, with how to handle technology with our kids, especially our younger kids. Um, it is a little bit addictive, as we all know, and how to help them manage that is one of our challenges. Toby is, you know, Toby is a little different from other kids in that. His um, his technical skills are so advanced and his social skills, sometimes he has to work a little bit on and that's totally fine. He sounds like an so engineer what, to me. I don't see, yeah. I see nothing wrong with this. I mean, me and Toby, well, I, we speak the same language. <laughs> I should tell the story of when I reached out to you because Toby discovered the Nozilla cast all on his own. Oh, wow. And he was participating in it. Um, and I said, well, wait a minute, I better check this out. What is this thing that my... <laughs> My 10-year-old is, is involved in. And so I realized that I should email you. And I wanted to make sure that he knew, you know, knew the etiquette of participating, which, you know, which for a young kid, especially online, you know, that might be hard to figure out. So I just wanted to check in. And you, you I said, you know, you know, sometimes Toby struggles a little bit with um, social stuff, but he really loves your show. And it's just really grounds him and gives him a sense of um, a community to, to be, be a part of. And you wrote back the most wonderful answer to me where, you, you know, I said, um, you said, uh, well, you know, I'm an engineer. All of us are a little bit like Toby. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, yeah, this, this is great. I, I just, he found I his tribe. This. Exactly. Found his tribe. <laughs> so I do try to, we, one thing I do with Toby is I, I say every day we have to go out on at least a little walk. Uh -huh. Um, I'll tell you another, and I'll, I'll finish with one other great story about Toby that I think speaks to your question. So when he was about five or six, I took him to play soccer. And he, um, you know, this is that age when all the kids sort of clump around the ball. Oh, yeah. I think know? it's one of the funniest things you can go watch. <laughs> so, I, I've thought about going and getting people from like old folks home all in a bus, bring them over, let them just sit and watch five-year-olds <laughs> play soccer. It's the, it, it'll cure everything. So, so this is a great story about Toby that will ring true for you. So he, he's, you know, first he's trying it and he's, you know, Toby's actually a pretty coordinated kid. He can, he can, he can, if he wants to be an athlete one day, he would be a perfectly fine athlete. So he's playing, but after a few minutes, he kind of starts to lose interest and he's wandering, look, kind of looking at the sky and looking at other things. And eventually the game's still going on. He walks over to his mom and me on the sideline and he says, I don't get it. If everyone wants the ball so bad, why don't they all just have their own ball? <laughs> <laughs> oh my thought, gosh, he is such an engineer. <laughs> what a great answer. It was like sort of a, you know, a practical solution to a problem that was confounding him. He said, I just don't get this game. And I said, okay, this might not be, he's probably not going to be a team sports kind of a kid. 
<laughs> but that's okay. So, oh, um, so fabulous. I, I really try to, I really think, you know, when, when, when each of us has some kind of gift, you know, one of our jobs as a parent with, with a child is to, is to really just encourage them in that, in the things that they're drawn to and to give them a lot of opportunity to go deep. So he's done programming classes and of course he gets to participate in Nozilla cast. And uh, we went to the expo, which was such a thrill and for him. And I just loved, you know, for me, it was just so great to, to watch him at it. And well, you liked it people. because there was that area where you could take home old computers. I think you yeah. brought home a couple of truckloads full. <laughs> well, and Toby begged me to bring home an X serve, um, a hard drive array. And, and, uh, and, uh, uh, of course he had it up and running by the end of the night, but man, that thing must weigh about a hundred pounds. So <laughs> he's going to get some physical exercise. I said, you, you're, you have to do some weightlifting with this thing as to well to, as to uh, move it, right? it to work. Well, one of my favorite <laughs> stories to tell from Max doc was when, uh, we were having lunch and Linda Goucher came over to me and she said, Hey, Allison, you're, you're, um, Wi-Fi hotspot on your phone isn't protected. And I said, what are you talking about? And she shows me that there's a network called PodFeet and it's an unprotected network. Well, my hotspot is not called PodFeet. And I thought for maybe five or six seconds and I went, Toby, and I mean, there's a room of 150 people in the room and I knew who was doing it. Right. I think he f- at the uh, hardware swap, he found some old um, so Linksys uh, router, I think. Uh, Linksys routers, right. And he said, oh, I think I'll set this up and see if anyone notices. <laughs> he, he, we, he still talks about we were, I think you gave a um, presentation about using a mind mapping and you were using, uh, is it I thought? Yes, I thought. I thoughts. And you, there was a, there's some kind of function where you can make an arrow between a, like a relational arrow between two different parts of your mind map. And you sort of said, I I don't quite know what this does. And you clicked on it and it, it kind of generated a a connecting arrow and everyone in the room went, Ooh, (laughs) and then everyone laughed because they realized how funny it was that we had all, and and Toby still talks about that as this, as a funny story of like, these are his people, right? That they that that was the, the something that they were into. So. That's a joke he understands, right? <laughs> yeah. So I don't know if I completely answered your question, other than just to say we try to we try to move our bodies around a little bit. But yeah. I also think for a kid like him, it's you know I think he's just so um, so curious and so interested in in the technology, and and he's so um, active in the way that he uses it. Right, that, right. He's um, experimenting all the time. And I, yeah. I, I thought of this question because I knew a kid, um, probably not as smart as Toby, and he was quite a bit older. He was, uh, I don't know, maybe 15 years old. Uh, he was a friend of my son's. And he and I would talk about computer stuff all the time. And uh, he and I together created a WordPress blog for the track team and stuff together. And uh, I happened to be talking to his mother once and she goes, oh, yeah, all he wants to do is play on his computer. I have to tell him all the time to stop it. And it was just like, no, you know, here's a kid who's found what he loves. And I mean, he was on the track team. It's not like he wasn't getting exercise. And she was trying to beat it out of him. And I was just so depressed. So I would I would secretly tell him not to listen to her. I think you gave wise advice. One one thing Toby learned right away was he he could say to me, he could say, I'd say, well, Toby, you've been on the computer for a while. You know, maybe it'd be good to just take a break and you can go back to it. He said, right, you know, he learned right away to say, but dad, I'm doing something active and creative on it. <laughs> well, yeah, he's not sitting, you know, watching YouTube. He's not just, you know, playing video games. He's honing skills, right? Yeah. And I noticed even when he does watch YouTube a bit, it's, it tends to be shows that are sort of about technical how to or things. Yeah. yeah. So he's so learning, right? Yeah. He's learning and, and it's, it's active and it's, he's, he's, active not passive that's right and i think that's okay you know and it is my job as his parent and his mom's job to you know to make sure there's some balance in there too and some other things and some and uh, that he does as well but but i really think um i think it's great and 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 you know if that means putting up with an uh an ex an ex serve uh (laughs) sitting in my living room which which is what it's doing right now then i don't mind doing that and 
Yeah. But man, that fan on that thing sure is noisy. I have to say that. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna you're gonna have to hook up an exercise bicycle to it so you can generate power for it, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I don't want to see my electrical bill at the end of the month. <laughs> it's gonna be rough. Well, yeah. hey, I I really do hate to cut this off because I think we could go on forever. But uh, if people wanted to communicate with you in some way, do you want them to go through me, or is there a Twitter handle or anything like that, a way to communicate with you? Well, they can, um, my website is michaeljkramer.net. So, um, and that's um, a Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-J and Kramer, K-R-A-M-E-R dot net. And um, my email's on there and my Twitter feed and people are welcome to email me and um, I'd be glad to talk with them about what they're doing and the stuff I'm interested in and my teaching and my research. And um and that'd be the, probably the best way to, to reach out to me. All right. Well, this has been fantastic. I've just got this big grin on my face. I enjoyed every minute of it. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure, Allison. And I'll be tuning in to, um, to the Nozilla cast and Chit Chat. And I just uh, admire everything you're doing in the community that you create um, online. It's just such a model of, of how to exist in the digital world. So thank you for your work, too. Oh, thank you so much. All right. We'll talk to you again soon. Okay, take care. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond. This show is not supported by ads. It's supported by you. If you learn from the show, or even if you're just merely entertained by the shows, please consider supporting the show. If you go to podfeet.com, there's a big red button in the top banner that says support the show. If you click it, that will reveal to you several ways to contribute. You can pledge a monthly amount using Patreon. You can use the Amazon affiliate link for your country. You can make a one-time donation using PayPal, or you can record a listener review, which is an awesome way to contribute. You can always chat directly with me via Twitter at Podfeet or email me at allison at podfeet.com. You can join the conversation in Facebook by going to podfeet.com slash Facebook or on Google Plus at podfeet.com slash Google Plus. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.